0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Welcome to the very first episode of the Law School Lounge Podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Norton. My first discussion with Professor Tanya Monastir covers the nuances and struggles of being a first-generation law student. Tanya's book, Shit No One Tells You About Law School, keeps in mind the first-generation law student perspective. The book is geared toward incoming law students and aims to help them navigate the law school experience. For context, let me share a little bit about Tanya and all of her accomplishments and all of the wonderful things that she does. Tanya Monastir is a professor of law at the University of Buffalo, where she teaches contracts, sales, conflicts of laws, and transnational litigation. Tanya's work has been published in leading academic journals and has been cited by numerous trial and appellate courts, including by the Supreme Court of Canada, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and dozens of federal and state courts. Most recently, Tanya's brief was cited by the US Supreme Court in Mallory versus Norfolk on matters of corporations and personal jurisdiction. No big deal. To top it all off, Tanya has been recognized as an exceptional teacher, winning Professor of the Year awards at Roger Williams University School of Law and Queens University Faculty of Law. Tanya graduated first in her class from Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, Canada, and she's the proud daughter of Italian immigrants. Obviously, I am beyond lucky to have had the opportunity to speak with Tanya. As you'll hear, we discuss everything from imposter syndrome to financial concerns. We talk about the culture of law school and how to manage struggles as a first-gen student. We do this through a lot of our own personal experiences so that you can learn at our expense and through our mistakes. We hope our insights and experiences help you. So now, on to our discussion. Welcome. Today with us, we have Professor Tanya Monastir, and she is here to tell us about Different things related to law school, and it's all from her book. We're going to talk and dive a little deeper and be a little bit more personal about these things uh, because I myself share a lot of the experiences you talk about in your book, and so I think it'd be really great if we were able to talk about them and share our experiences with others and how we dealt with them. Because I know I felt a little bit alone during that experience. Is is that the same for you? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I. Felt like I was a fish out of water in law school, and nowadays I think people talk about that more. But when I went to law school, it was really something that you just felt and dealt with yourself. So I think it's important to have these sorts of conversations so students don't feel like they're
0: alone. No, I agree. I agree. And so basically, what we're talking about to get us started is just what it's like going to law school as a first generation student. And so, in your own words, what would you say or how would you define? first-generation student? Because I think even that is something people don't know. Yeah, No,
1: absolutely. That was actually where I was going to start. So I'm glad that you've asked the question. You know, um, I think there is a definition of first generation student, meaning somebody whose parents didn't go to to college, and so you're the first in your family to go to college. But the thing is that there is a wide gamut of students whose parents didn't go to college, and I, I don't know that all the experiences are similar, right? So, like the the bond is that you're the first person to go to college, but beyond that, I think there's like a wide variety of students, and so. In my case, my parents were both immigrants from Italy. They grew up in very small villages, very poor, no electricity, no running water, no bathrooms in the house, uh, no education. I mean, they went to school up until age 11 or 12, grade five, I think it was. And then they went to work. Like my mom went to work in a factory. My dad started doing construction at age 12 that you know that's one experience right and you know that's a first generation student you know somebody whose parents have like almost no education and then there's also students who you know grew up in the united states or in my case it was canada and who went through school um, in North America, and finished high school, and maybe had blue collar jobs, but just didn't go to college. And I think that experience is maybe a little bit different than students whose first language is not English, whose parents, um, you know, grew up, somewhere across the world with no running water. And, you know, we lump all those experiences together. And I do think there's a commonality, but even within first generation, I think you have different experiences. So I'm sorry, that was a long winded answer. Um, but I, you know
0: no, it was a great oh, answer. Thank you.
1: I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think a lot of what you put in your book, even though I am not Uh, from an immigrant family, a lot of what you put into your book resonated with me for lots of different reasons. And I think that that's kind of the first gen experience. There are, it might be overall different. The picture might look different, but there are just certain connections that you make with other people who are in the same boat as you. And I think too, when you're talking about first generation students, there's a difference between first generation students who are going to college and first generation students who are going for an advanced degree, Mm -hmm. right? Because I know that when I was in law school, there were students whose parents maybe had gone to undergrad and graduated, but they didn't pursue an advanced degree. And I myself am actually very similar. My dad does construction, uh, which is a yes, yes. And it's so funny because, The man strongly dislikes school, everything about it. It was just not his thing. He barely passed and graduated. My grandma actually did a lot of his homework. And he was like, kid, I don't know where you came from. Because every day he'd come home and I'd be like, read, daddy, read. And he'd read to me. And he's like, I don't know whose kid you are, but you're going to be really smart. Um, And it just makes me laugh because reading some of the stuff you have in here I really, really, I was like, yes, that's exactly what happened to me. Where's this one quote I have to read? It's about the world book encyclopedias. Yeah, yeah. As I made my way through my academic career, however, I was always acutely aware that I wasn't like other students. My parents weren't doctors, lawyers, and teachers, as it seemed to everyone else's parents were. My parents weren't able to help me with complicated math, book reports, or history and geography assignments, though they did buy me the full set of world book encyclopedias to help me out. And my parents did the exact same thing. They still have them. And we still have uh, them. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, still have them. They're in the downstairs, like, cupboard area. I love looking at And I, I love all these five.
1: Like, this was Google before <laughs> Google,
0: you know? <laughs> 100%. And I was like, oh my goodness, look at all the pictures. Because, you know, now you could just Google all of that stuff, of course, right. or turn on the TV. But back then I was like, oh, look at all these pictures and all these different things. But my parents also, they, I think it was about fourth grade. They just were like, okay, we're not, we're not going to help you with your homework anymore. You can call like your aunts and uncles or like your grandma. Cause she did my homework. Maybe she can help you out. Yeah. But what happened was we had this math problem that my fourth grade teacher assigned me. And I was just like, you describe yourself in your book. I was like, I'm going to do really well in school. I want to be really smart. And so we spent all this time working on this math problem uh, because my dad does love math. And (laughs) I go to school the next day and they're like, oh, sorry, we assigned the wrong problem. There's actually no answer. (laughs) to that problem. <laughs> and my parents were like, that's it. We're not helping you anymore. We're not doing trick math problems. No. Go get them. Here are your books. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is just a different experience. And I think too, and something I wanted to ask you about is the social sort of aspects, you know, like I know when I went to undergrad, I was a business undergrad in Spanish. And so there were just like, my dad didn't wear a suit to work. Mm-hmm. My mom was a stay-at-home mom um, because she was very fortunate that my dad did very well at his drywall and sheetrock business, but like, I didn't know how to buy a suit or tailor a suit or do any of those things, right? So it's not even just like a learning school thing. It's also the culture that comes with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're just, you know, like I said before, a fish out of water, you don't know what you're supposed to have. Do you have like the right equipment, right? In law school, whether that be, do I need to buy a briefcase? Do I need to buy a suit? Do I need a certain kind of folio? And you're kind of looking around going like, I didn't get the memo on this stuff. And everyone else seemed to have gotten the memo and you didn't. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll take my mom to Macy's and find a suit or something. Um, So it just feels like there's a whole universe that you're not privy to that you have to learn on your own by observing people. So, you know, that part, you know, that that's tough, but not as tough as some of the other things, the, the, you know, um, I hate to use the term imposter syndrome. I use it in, in my book, just because it's become like the way that you describe things, but just a more profound sense of not belonging that, you know, the the logistical stuff, you can figure out the feeling like you're not in the right place. um, That's the tougher thing to deal with.
0: No, I agree. And I I think it just shows up usually at the most inopportune times, right? Uh, For example, we had like a a law review dinner, right, where everybody goes. And it was like at this really fancy restaurant. And I didn't really, you know, I was just kind of watching. I know, like, you know, put your napkin in your lap and all yeah. that stuff. But there were multiple forks and <laughs> multiple things like that. And I was like, I don't have no idea what this is because we just that's not how I was raised. Right. A lot of these people were raised in those sorts of conditions and circumstances where they are used to schmoozing at dinner and doing all those Mm -hmm. things. And it was just very, uh, it felt like I was learning on top of learning, right? right? Like, so it feels like you have a double the load to learn. And obviously, depending on your circumstances, like you were talking about how people who maybe come in learning uh, with English as a second or third language, obviously, they're learning on top of learning. And so it can feel really overwhelming and lonely at times.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you, you said you went to this law review dinner, my experience with law review was different in that, well, first of all, in Canada, law review is a little different than it is in the United States. I think it's just not as I don't want to say it's not as important to be on Law Review, but when when I went to school, it wasn't like the thing that set you apart. And I remember friends of mine saying, you know, I'm trying out for law review. It's the thing to do. And like, I didn't even know what it was and who to ask. And I remember thinking like they they described it to me as like, oh, you're going to read other people's articles and you're going to site check them using the McGill guide. That's our equivalent of the blue book. And I was like, why would I do that? That sounds so awful and boring. And that's going to take a lot of time. And, you know, I didn't have like a mentor, or anyone to ask, like, should I do this? Is it worth it? And so I just went based on my gut thinking, that sounds awful. And it's going to take time away from my study. So I'm not going to do it. Um, but it's like, I, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't have anyone to ask, because, you know, I think things have changed now. But when, when I went to school 20 years ago, it wasn't like you were set up with all these mentors and you didn't go to your professors and talk to them. Like there, there was none of that. You were just like on your own to figure things out from course selection to extracurriculars to, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the dinners, right? There was like no sessions on how to do a resume or how to do this or how to do that. And so uh, you were really left in the dark and to your own devices. And sometimes that meant you made good decisions and sometimes you made bad decisions. I'm glad things have changed now, but that doesn't necessarily change that inner feeling of like, I'm on my own. I have no one to ask. I don't, I don't know. I can't ask my parents. I can't ask relatives because nobody went to school. And so I just will sort of muddle through this.
0: Yeah. And I I think part of that is like the culture of law school, right? In a way. So I didn't want to admit that I didn't know certain Mm -hmm. things to people around me because that would oftentimes be used against you, whether it was, purposefully or not, it was very difficult to admit if you didn't know something or if you were uncertain about anything, because it felt like it was going to reflect, even though they're completely different aspects, right? It felt like your inability to feel like you fit in would reflect upon your ability to do the work or to be a lawyer. And that's just not true, right? I mean, they're definitely separate. But I think there was sort of this feeling that I didn't want to admit to anybody else, right? You don't have a safe space to talk about those things. But I will say, I think law school, as you, I graduated 10 years Mm -hmm. ago, uh, Mm -hmm. and I think that, like you say, it is changing a lot. I think there are more resources and acknowledgement that some people come to law school are starting from a different place than others. And I think that's really important because like I said, you're learning on top of learning, on top of learning. And that's really demanding. And people forget that you're having to learn. I remember I had a roommate, right? And she was, so I moved to New Orleans to go to law school and I had a roommate who her whole family were lawyers. And the first, I moved early in the summer so that I could get accustomed to being in New Orleans. And the first thing they said to me was, aren't you excited to be a one L? You're like, what's a one L? No, 100%. And I, I was like, sure. My dad was there with me because he's helping me move in. He looks and he's like, I don't know what he's talking about yeah. either, but it's those little things, right? Like I didn't know what a 1L was. I didn't know what an outline was. I didn't know, you know, anything at all about yeah. that. And thank goodness we have the internet now. I mean, I think the internet helps a lot, but not all information you find online is <laughs> good information, right? right? Uh, it's really interesting to just get different people's perspectives. I've heard a lot about different programs at schools, where they do things like the counselor's closet, Mm -hmm. like the University of Memphis does that. And it's a place where anyone can go in and get a suit for free and like anything they need to go on interviews or do moot court or anything like that. And just those things weren't around when I was in law school or when you were in law school, i agree. I think law
1: schools have done a really good job about trying to correct some of the maybe informational imbalances, but there still remain a lot of challenges that... I think law schools can't really tackle and that aren't really discussed like I'll tell you one thing, you know, particularly in immigrant families, from my experience, there is a lot of pressure put on kids and I think it's not necessarily from the parents, although sometimes it is, it's from the kids themselves who feel like my parents came to this country to give me a better life and I need to succeed. And if I don't, I'm a failure. So this like self-imposed pressure, I've had students in my office just like break down in tears, crying because Hmm. their parents are going to be disappointed that they got a B. That's a lot to handle on the emotional side. And there's like, there's no outlet for that. There's no one to talk to. You can't talk to your parents about it. You can't talk to other students about it because they're they're not gonna understand because I think the pressure is largely self-generated, right, feeling like your parents Mm -hmm. didn't have the life that they've now created for you and you have to make the most of it. And if you're not succeeding or meeting whatever definition of success you've set for yourself, then you're letting them down. So there's like, there's that, that really I think looms large and that a lot of people don't know about. Um, And then the other thing I would say that's below the surface is this feeling of not belonging, not only in school, but also now in your own home. Right. And so um, there's like no place you fit in anymore because Now you're in law school, so you're already kind of this outlier because you're going to law school. And so now within your family, you're different in a way that people can't relate to. And people who have particularly extended family that also hasn't gone to, to college or anything like that, that's maybe in the trades or has done something else, they feel like you're this curious like animal at a zoo. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're just, you're put off to the side. But, and, you know, the feelings can be different. It could be their own insecurity. It could be like feeling like, oh, you're too good for us now. It could be feeling like they just can't relate to you. But you, I think you feel like an outlier everywhere, like in your own home, and in your academic home. And so, you know, that that's another thing that I think is really difficult to deal with.
0: No, that's a, that's a really great point because I was always so jealous of my friends whose maybe parents or even siblings were already practicing law because it was very easy for them to call and be like, oh my goodness, I had this exam and it was horrible and whatever. And of course I could call my family and say, this exam is horrible, but at the same time, I don't want to tell them that because I do want to succeed. Right. And I want to, and I did well in law school. I'm, I did, but I had to work really hard to do well in law school. Uh, and I, I did feel very, like any, anything that didn't go as I had planned. I didn't necessarily want to share that with my family because I felt like I was letting them down. I think that's a, mm-hmm. a completely valid point, but also I had to learn a lot of stuff to talk about law school. So in order for me to talk to people who don't know anything about law school, I have to, I feel like I have to, and then that just feels condescending, right? I feel like I have to be like, okay, so this right. is what it's like in law school. And yeah, yeah. And you then like a, a- Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, oh gosh, I'm awful. Here, listen to me talk. Like, so it is, it's a very off-putting situation and I'm glad we're talking about it. Cause like I said, I think a lot of people feel this way and and I'm glad that we're giving them space to feel that way. And so I would ask kind of what tips do you have for people who find themselves in the first generation experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I really have any tips I don't know that there it's a problem that can be solved right like how you're feeling on the inside in your different spaces you know I I think finding like-minded students students who maybe come from the same type of background or who can really appreciate what you're going through I think that's helpful to have some sort of support network Um, I think if you're a student and you can connect with a professor who might be first generation, that would be awesome. I'll tell you, there's not a lot of us. Um, And, um, you know, I had one research assistant who... I hired him after my my or his first year at school. And I feel like the connection that we made really, really helped him. And I'm not saying that in a I'm so special kind of way. But he, you know, he told me he felt like no one got it right. And he felt like, he couldn't trust advice from his professors because he saw them as like coming from a different world, right? And like when you see the, I went to Harvard and, you know, like all that stuff, you sort of like associate these people with a different world and one that cannot understand like where you're from, right? And what your dinner table conversations look like. And I I actually think that's true, right? I think a lot of professors don't understand that other people don't sit around talking about like, Art and culture and law and history and politics, right? <laughs> like some people just sit around talking about like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, uh, right? The Housewives of Jersey. Of
0: sure. Yes. Right.
1: Um, and so I think that having somebody who came from that same background as him, um, you know, having me to talk to, and also he said, just, I feel like I could trust what you said because you have lived it, you understand where I'm coming from. And so I like I buy your advice more than I buy the advice of these other people who come from a different world and can't relate to me. So um, I guess my advice is just like seek out people that you think can understand what you're going through. And, And you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be first gen students, professors, counselors, whatever, but somebody who you really feel like gets you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's solid advice for anyone going into any of these situations, whether first gen or not. Right. You just find your people. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, your people are especially in this sort of crash course that is law school can really help you in so many different ways, including being a support system. Yeah, Oh, absolutely. But I think, too, one thing I would note is just going in knowing you're going to have these feelings and that's OK right? You're going to go in this, this is going to be something you experience. There's nothing wrong with you for experiencing these things. It's totally normal. You just have to figure out what works for you to work through those emotions. Because I think that that's one thing that I felt. I was like, I feel like a fish out of water and I don't know if that's how I should feel. Is it okay for me to feel this way? You know, there was a lot of conflicting emotions. Like I got here, I'm here on my own merit and I'm doing well. So why do I let myself feel that imposter syndrome that you were mentioning? And just knowing that you're going to feel that sometimes and it's okay. And you should have your people to lean on, do whatever makes you feel comfortable or like get back to yourself. But just knowing you're not alone in that feeling, right?
1: Yeah, there's actually something I would add that might even be more important or equally important that I just thought of. And that is, I think when you feel like you don't belong, you don't know what you're doing, you have a tendency to want to jump on the bandwagon. And when you see other people doing something, you're like, that's the right thing. I'm going to switch course. And I guess my advice would be to absolutely resist that urge, right? Um, When you feel insecure about your own abilities, you want to just emulate what you see. And sometimes that's not, just because other people are doing it doesn't make it a good thing. And so I would say step back And make sure you're doing things for the right reasons. And so, you know, if you are taking notes by hand and you feel like that's the right thing to do for you and everyone else is taking them by computer, don't like automatically go and take notes by computer because everyone else is doing it. And I've fallen into that trap several times where I just felt panicked and I did things because other people were doing them or I second-guessed my own ability because I didn't have confidence in myself and you know I have a story in the book um, that I talk about it's from I think my first year of teaching and I wrote this article I thought it was really good and I gave it to a friend of mine and he like He tore it apart and said, like, you know, it needs to be recalibrated and you need to move this around. And like, I just I felt like, oh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I was wrong. Let me do it his way. Right. So I changed it all around to to make it more consistent with what he thought was the better work product. And I submitted it to a journal. And, you know, the journal came back and they're like, we really like the ideas, but the way it's structured, we don't really love. Like, we think it would be better this other way. And that was the way I'd done it, you know. And so, like, I didn't trust myself enough to just go with what I'd written. And luckily, the journal, you know, I, I submitted my version to them the very next day and they accepted it. They're like, yeah, this is exactly what we were looking for. And so, you know, that feeling of not trusting yourself doesn't go away. After law school, it, it could get better, but you know, twenty years out, I'm still like, oh, I'm not sure, right? Yeah. Um, And so, knowing that other people are like this too, and like that, I'm telling you, after twenty years, I still like, I'm not sure about things if I'm doing things the right way, and so you can be forgiven as a one L for you know feeling this this intense panic and anxiety of wanting to do things how other people are doing, but the advice is step back and decide if you genuinely think this is the right thing to do, or if you're just doing it because everyone else is doing it.
0: Right. And I I think you're in your book, you talk about it in the frame of like internal and external motivations, right? Like what is your internal sort of view on what you're doing and what is the external thing that's pushing you to maybe make a different decision?
1: Right. Yeah. I talk about Kelly and her highlighters, right? So she had like, she's in the library with the six different color highlighters. And I was like, I don't have highlighters. I have a pencil. What do I do? (laughs) Do I go to staples with my highlighters? And, you know, ultimately I didn't do the whole highlighter thing because I thought that was just like too much work. And, um, and so, you know, my advice is like, don't just use highlighters because Kelly's using highlighters. Right. And, you know, that applies to things big and small, like highlighters, note-taking, outlining, preparing for exams. Like, you know, the highlighter thing might not be a big deal, but as you go through all these other things, like eventually those things are going to to matter. So you need to make good decisions about those other things.
0: Yeah, no, and I think a really big part where this comes into play in law school in particular is with career choice, because mm-hmm. there's such a emphasis, an emphasis in law school to go big law, right? And especially if you do well in law school, right? You're Mm -hmm. open to opportunities that you might not otherwise be presented with if you're not in the top 10% of the class or whatever the case may be, right? So I myself did very well. I was in the top 10% and everybody was like, well, now you go interview with big law. And I was like, okay. But I went to law school to practice immigration, which immigration law is not big law for the most right. part, unless you're going to do maybe like business law, but no, of course not. I wanted to do like the asylum and and all of that. And I was in the yeah. immigration clinic at Loyola, New Orleans, but everybody was like, no, you have to, you have to interview for the big law firms and yeah. you have to go. And then I had my summer internships and I got an offer and it was between doing that or clerking in an immigration court for the attorney general's office. And I declined the big law offer and everyone thought I was out of my mind. They were like, what are, what are you doing? Right. And I just knew that that was not for me. And I think that I learned a lot about myself in law school in particular That led me to make that decision. And ultimately I ended up working in the government for so many years, left the government to be self-employed. And now I work in publishing, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, (laughs) neither here nor there. I teach as well. And I do instructional design, but it took me a long time to feel comfortable and doing that. Right. And it it took me a long time to feel secure and confident in making the decisions that were best for me and my skills and what I like to do every day. And there's so much pressure in law school to do the traditional sort of litigation or whatever the case may be, but there's so many more things you can do with a law degree. And so I think law schools are doing a better job of kind of opening those things. And I think first gen students in particular might be called to more of those things just because they don't have those preconceived notions of what you should do. So they're like, Oh, well let me see what this is about. Right. And so encouraging that I think is a really good thing. And so don't let what should be done scare you off from what you want to do would be another piece of advice.
1: Yeah. You know, what's funny is I have actually kind of the opposite story from you in that I had a student who, was really being pushed into public interest and loved public interest, but she did so well in school. She got all these job offers at big law firms and she kind of wanted to explore that at least to pay off her law school debt and to, you know, see what that life was like. But she felt like she was being a sellout if she took a job paying, you know, $150,000 a year. And so like she felt this pressure from herself, from, you know, the law school or whatever, you know, the public interest, you know, programming that she did to go this other route and ultimately decided that at least for now, like she could do the law firm thing and she could always go to public interest if that's what she wanted to do later. So it's just interesting that it worked the opposite way in her case where it felt she felt pressure not to take that job because, she, you know, that was sort of looked down upon in the circles that
0: she was in. No, it's interesting that you say that, because I think I I had the similar experience. So I I ended up working for the Department of Homeland Security, which as someone who started out on the defense side of immigration is obviously not common. But Mm -hmm. I was the only, everybody was like, you're going to do what? And exactly, the word sellout was mm-hmm. very much <laughs> thrown yeah, around. Yeah, it's such a
1: loaded term, and it's awful that people would judge other people's career choices that way. But yeah, that, that's just like another part of the pressure. And that's not just first-gen students. I think that's all students that feel Agreed. some sort of pressure to go to big law or to go to public interest or to do certain things. Yeah. Uh, again, the same advice, kind of resist other people's views of what you should do and really decide what's best for you?
0: Well, here's a question. This will be our last question on this topic, yeah. because I know it's something that I worried a lot about. And I think it's related to what we're talking about, but, but money, mm-hmm. right? So for me, I was like, well, should I take big law or a government job? Cause those are stable. I have benefits, which are things I did not grow up with. Yeah. Right. Like my parents provided for me and they did very well providing for me and they always met my needs, but like our health insurance was a nightmare. Cause they didn't, they were self-employed, like you, it was wicked expensive. And even once you got it, it didn't really do anything. Right. And so like the thought of having steady health insurance, I was like, wow. And like, I waited tables and bartended my way through law school and undergrad. So like not getting any benefits there. So I was like, wow, health insurance. Right. So those types of things are really attractive and they're just things that you consider differently. And same with money, right. Having a salary, And things like that are things that people who might have always had those things don't think about. And so Mm -hmm. would you make any recommendations or do you have any thoughts on that kind of perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have lots of thoughts on money, so I devote a whole chapter of the book to money <laughs> matters yeah, I mean, I think money decisions have to start on day one in terms of where you want to go to law school and really assessing what what your potential is, right? And so are you going to take out $200,000 in loans? that's going to take forever to pay back. Or do you go to your not dream school and get close to a full scholarship? I mean, sometimes those decisions have to be made. And, you know, as much as everyone wants to go to their dream school for free, that's just not going to happen. And so you really have to evaluate what the value added is of a school that's ranked 30 or 40 spots higher, let's say, um, when it's going to take you 20 years to pay off that school, right? And so I think that the money decisions start entering law school, because you're going to be saddled with this debt for such a long time. And, you know, I think, that law students being like 22, 23, just don't think about money in the same way as somebody in their thirties and forties. They just, it's like play money, right? It's like, it's not money. It's a loan. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, a loan is money. And I remember having a conversation with a student who wanted to transfer. He was getting almost a full scholarship. I think it was 75, 80% scholarship at, at our school. And he wanted to go to a school in California And, you know, it was ranked higher, but it it wasn't Stanford. Okay. Um, And I was like, well, why do you want to go there? And he's like, oh, my family's closer. And like, I like the ocean and this and that. I was like, okay, these are not good reasons to dish out over $100,000. And, you know, I said to him, like, that's a Ferrari. And maybe because he was a guy like that just really resonated <laughs> with him. And he decided to stay and he did well and he graduated. And, you know, he's, he's off doing his thing now. But like, I don't think students look at loans as real money that they have to pay back. And, and that needs to, to change. And I think the decisions that you make at the outset, in terms of where you go, will then trickle over into the types of jobs you can afford to take, right? So if you're not being burdened with $200,000 in debt, plus undergrad debt, right, potentially, then maybe you can take that public interest job or public defender job or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, sometimes if you do have all that debt, you may be sort of forced, I guess, to... Take a higher paying job if that's available to you. And so um, I think that money decisions are incredibly important. I don't think that your career decisions should be influenced. um, You know, I, I think money should be a factor in your ultimate decision. I don't think it should be the only factor. I mean, I was offered a job at a, you know, big law firm paying Oh, a ton of money. Like when I told my dad, like what I was going to be employed at the London office and they were going to pay me in British pounds. And So when you converted the British pounds to Canadian dollars at the time, it was a quarter of a million Canadian dollars. Mm. And my dad was like, oh my God, how are you turning that down? And why are you are going to be a teacher? I'm like, it's a professor. It's a little different. Whatever. Um, and so like, he was just like, even to this day, it's just like, oh, you know, you've been making so much money. And, um, you know, like, obviously it's hard to turn down that amount of money, but it's also not really what I wanted to be doing. And so I, I you know, I think money is a, is certainly a factor, um, at all stages, but it, it shouldn't be the only fact.
0: Yeah, no, and I agree. I think that was really well said and, and very true. And I, you know, it's funny because my, my dad, when he, started this, whole, he's like, you're going to go to college. And then when I told him I was going to law school, I think he almost had a heart attack. Um, cause he was like more school. <laughs> <Yeah>. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, cause my, my parents were wonderful about my, my dad and my uncle, who was actually my godfather were very good at the market. They were like very interested in yeah. it. And so it was just, my dad likes numbers, likes math. Math was always something he can get behind, even if it was in school. And, uh, so they were, very smart and they put away for me for college. And so I was able to pay for college. And then my last semester of college, went, I'm going to go to law school and I almost fainted on the phone. He was like, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think I heard <laughs> right. you right. you're going to go to what? And I said, law school, dad, we're going to law school. He now looks back and says, it was the best decision I ever made. Mm-hmm. But sort of the deal I made with myself was I will pay for the first year. If I don't, get scholarships than I'm pull I'm pulling out because it was just so expensive. Yeah. Uh, and so I worked really hard my first year. I was fortunate enough to be afforded scholarships, but you're right. It limits your career choices. It limits sort of, you know, if you're going to be, if you're a first gen student in particular, and you're kind of wanting to help your family, those types of mm-hmm. things come into play and you you don't want to take out so many loans that you're not in a position to do that. And so I think, you know, just that money, even having to think about money. So a lot of people I was friends with in law school, they didn't have to think about money, mm-hmm. right? Like... I was, it was smart of me, uh, you know, in New Orleans to work in a bar because even though I was working every weekend, all my friends came in and hung out yeah. with me. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have to think about money. Like they didn't work in law school. They didn't, you know, those just, just your lifestyle looks very different and it will continue to look a little bit different after law school. And like I said before, like those things are okay. Yeah. Like there's nothing, it's not, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I think this was a really great conversation. So thank you for talking to me about this. Of course. If you're ready, we can switch gears to our next topic. That concludes part one of my wonderful conversation with the awesome Professor Tanya Monestier. Thank you for listening. We hope you found our discussion helpful and that you shared a laugh or two with us. In the next episode, Tanya and I tackle taking notes in law school. It's already available in your feed, so stay tuned. Also, if you're interested in hearing more of Tanya's unfiltered, on-point advice, please check out her book, Shit No One Tells You About Law School. If you're a student and you purchase at our website, cap-press.com, you'll get 10% off. There's a link in the show notes for you. Finally, if you could take a moment and just please give us a short five-star review on whatever platform you use, that would be wonderful because it really helps get the show out there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at LawSchoolLoungePod. Give us a follow. If you have any episode requests or other questions, please send an email to me at LawSchoolLoungePod at CapLaw.com. I'd love to hear from you and thanks again for listening.